right. We're finishing 2 Timothy today. We've been in it for 10 weeks. We're wrapping this sucker up. Who's ready? Good. Five people. All right. (laughs) I had breakfast with TJ Nolan. Uh, He was a youth pastor here for several years on Friday. And I told him I had to teach today. And he said, well, what are you teaching out of? And I told him, he said, what are you doing, a funeral? (laughs) It might be mine, right? So... So we are closing out the book of 2 Timothy today, right? We've been in this letter for 10 weeks, this letter that was written by a guy named Paul to a a younger pastor, somebody that he was mentoring by the name of Timothy. And Paul's writing this letter from a Roman jail. He's been imprisoned. He's on death row, in essence. Like he is facing death. He's facing execution for his belief in Jesus, for the work that he has done. And so while Paul is sitting in the cell, he's writing letters to different uh, co-workers in the ministry, and one of them is Timothy. And he wrote several letters to Timothy. Uh, The first, we call First Timothy, creative, I know. And it's about the corporate church. It's about how the church can Uh, return to faithfulness in the gospel. It's about church leadership, about elders and deacons, and it's it's far more about uh, the corporate church. But this second letter, 2 Timothy, it's got a far different tone to it. It's far more personal. This is widely considered one of the most personal letters of Paul. And so he's writing to Timothy, hey, Timothy, as a pastor in Ephesus, these are things that you need to know. Because Paul actually planted the church in Ephesus that Timothy is a pastor at. And so he knows the community. He knows the city. He knows what Timothy is facing. He knows the people that he's ministering to. And so Paul writes this to Timothy and he says, here's the deal. Life is going to be hard. Keep going. All while Paul sits in a jail cell on death row. And so this morning we're going to pick up in chapter 4, we're going to pick up with these words that Brandon just read. We're going to start in verse 5. And if this is your first week with us, this is the perfect time to jump in because one, you get one week and you're done with 2 Timothy. And two, we're starting out with a summary of 2 Timothy, okay? Verse 5. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That is the entire letter in one verse. Be self-controlled in everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. This is the letter of 2 Timothy in one sentence. And as Paul moves from this into verse 6, he's going to start sharing some final thoughts on his life. But in verse 5, Timothy, these are what I'm calling you to do with your life. You still have it. It's in front of you. Mine, it's coming to a close. Timothy, exercise self-control. Be sober-minded. Think clearly of what's going on. Respond appropriately to your circumstances. This has to do with moral alertness. It has to do with uh, keeping a cool head. 
It has to do with a presence of mind. Pastor Alistair Begg says this about this verse. He said, uh, this verse calls us to avoid being fat-headed, bobble-headed, empty-headed, sick-headed, and hot-headed. Right? To be sober-minded means that you are not fat-headed. You're not proud and you're not arrogant. That you're not bobble-headed. That you don't bounce around from fad to fad, but that you're rooted. That you aren't empty-headed. That you aren't getting involved in ignorant controversy that you aren't sick-headed, that your mind isn't full of immorality, that you're not hot-headed, that you don't respond in sinful anger. Instead, you respond in gentleness. We are to be level-headed. Self-control and steadfastness are the marks of faithfulness. So before everything, exercise self-control. Be sober-minded. He goes on to say, endure hardship. There's a reason that this series is called Resilient. Because over and over and over again, Paul is saying, it's gonna be hard, keep going. It's gonna be hard, keep going. It's gonna be hard, keep going. Endure hardship, endure suffering. Most of this letter is about pushing forward while suffering. Paul's saying, don't be ashamed of suffering. It's not a bad thing. But in your suffering, don't pull back from the gospel. Don't pull back from what Jesus has done for you in your suffering. Your suffering doesn't dictate what he's done for you. But what he's done for you helps you see clearly the suffering that you are going through. And Paul uses the analogy of three human occupations to understand Christian suffering. He refers to a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And in these three occupations, there's a degree of suffering as well as a degree of reward. So he starts with the soldier and he says, you know what, soldiers suffer continually, even facing the possibility of death. Their reward is a potential victory for their country. An athlete suffers during bodily training for the hope of a prize as they compete. And farmers, they weather, they labor, There's the potential of losing their crops or losing their flocks. Why? Because there is harvest. And all of these, there is suffering with a future reward. Because in your suffering, there is hope of what is to come. We endure hardship because there is hope of what is to come. Now, if you want to talk about a statement that I have personally been able to live out the last two years, it's this. Keep going. Because there's hope in what is to come. In August 2020, my wife and I became licensed foster parents here in the state of Indiana. And in September of 2020, we opened our house to a six-year-old little girl. In November of 2020, our church began its all-in discipleship journey. And for the last two years, I've lived in waiting, both in my home and here at work. It was about four years ago when uh, I started to feel God calling me to something a little different. 
Now, I, I was not dissatisfied with being here. I wasn't dissatisfied with what I was doing, but there was a spiritual itch. I'm like, man, I don't know what this is. And so I started talking to older folks in my life and just saying, man, this is what's going on in me. I have no idea what this is. I honestly thought that God was preparing me to go plant a church somewhere. I really did. Uh, before coming here, I'd been a part of four different church plants in various degrees, uh, but never wanted to be a planning pastor because teaching was icky. <laughs> and then I moved here. So I was like, all right, like maybe that was kind of like a final hurdle and, and maybe he's preparing me to, to go do this and somewhere in Indiana. So I started talking to people and they're like, all right, well, let's start praying about it. You know? And then I talked to my wife and she said, no. God put us in Shelbyville. He put you at the church and he put me in the community. He called us to Shelbyville and we're gonna stay. <laughs> now, if you know my wife, I talk a lot of trash about her up here. I'm well aware. She does not put her foot down often, but she did that day. And I'm grateful for it. Because it was through my wife that I knew I was called to this city, not just to our church. And so I started having this random idea in my head of, man, what does it look like to take woodworking, this thing I really do poorly, out of my garage, and how do we use this for discipleship and apprenticeship here in our community? I, like, I don't even know what this is. I don't know if this is what God's calling me to. And so the first person that I told of this idea was, was Brian Baker. And he was over here, and I went up to him on a Sunday, and I said, hey, man, uh, I've got this idea I want to run past you. Would you be willing to get breakfast? And he said, yes. And I said, oh, crap, now I have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so we met at Grandma's Pancake House, and I really had a jumbled idea of what this thing was. It was not put together. I had no clue what I was even going to share with him, but I knew that I was supposed to. And so I walked into grandma's and I sat down in a booth with him and I just started talking about this thing and I don't know if it was even coherent. And to be completely honest, in that moment, this whole idea could have died. But God used Brian to speak confidence in me. He said, Craig, not only as an elder in the church, but also as a business owner in the community, I've got your back in this. Oh crap, I gotta keep going. <laughs> and so I literally left grandma's and I came here and I parked out front and I walked in and Jason Chenoweth was still on staff at the time and I walked into his office and I said, hey man, you got a minute? He said, sure. And so I sat on the big black couch that most of us have cried on <laughs> and I started talking and he stared at me with this stupid toothy grin. <laughs> you all know what I'm talking about. The one where you're like, he either thinks I'm an idiot or he's like super excited. And again, I, this jumbled mix is coming out of my mouth. I'm like, I don't even know what this looks like. And he looks me dead in the eye and he says, Craig, you're the worst person to do that. <laughs> but, it's the best word, but that's what makes you the perfect person to do that because when it all comes together, you can't take any credit for it. All you can do is point to God for providing. Over the last two years through All In, I've sat 
And it's not that I've just sat and twiddled my thumbs. I've worked a lot of hours. It's been stupid. <laughs> but I've waited, right? We launched a, a preschool. And then we launched a women's house. And we got a care and counseling facility. And I've just sat. And it would have been incredibly easy for me to sit down and formulate a game plan and put it all together and try and force this thing into existence. But instead I said, I'm just gonna sit and I'm gonna be the worst person to do this. And over the last two years, we were awarded a grant that sent me to the Mark Adams School of Woodworking. It's the largest woodworking school in the world. It is the most uh, impressive, uh, it is the most well-known globally. It's 25 minutes from here. People from all over the world fly in. Instructors from all over the world fly in. The best craftspeople of modern time teach there. And I got a grant that paid for me to go for five weeks this last year. I did not make that happen. In the first couple days of each class, they go around and you know, hey, let's get to know each other. And as an introvert, it's my worst nightmare. And I'm, hi, I'm Craig. I, I'm gonna use woodworking to help folks in my community really poorly, right? Three of the instructors that I've had said, man, I wanna help you do that. The last class that I took, I was building a chair, uh, and the guy that I was taking the class from, his name is Philip Morley. Uh, he's a furniture maker based out of Texas. He's originally from England. And uh, he's dyslexic, and he's like, man, I was, I was so bad at school that everybody told me I was a colossal failure. But he said, thankfully in England, they have a really good apprenticeship program where they, they put people in the trades. And so at 15, I got hooked up in a trade school where I learned the craft of woodworking, and it's completely changed my life. I said, yeah, this is what I'm hoping to do in my community He's not a believer, but he said, Craig, he said, I wish there were more people willing to advocate for others. He said, next time I'm up here to teach at Mark Adams, I wanna come see your shop and I'd love to volunteer. Now, for most of you, meaning all of you, Philip Morley does not mean a thing to you. This dude is my Tiger Woods. He's my Michael Jordan. What? I didn't make that happen. Faith and finances, jobs for life, two of the core curriculums that we're gonna be using at the shop, I did not find them. This building, this weird 60s diner with a big metal shed attached to it, I did not provide the funds for us to purchase that. It's literally located across the street from Community Corrections. I didn't do that. A couple months ago, I met a guy by the name of Josh Martin. He's the executive director of Community Corrections here in Shelbyville. It turns out we went to the same college on the north side of Chicago. He started the year after I graduated. He attended a church that I worked with heavily while I worked at Silver Birch. I had friends on staff at the church that he went to. The similarities that we have, it's just silly. It's stupid. I did not make it happen that God placed both of us in the community with the same heart and same desire to see things change in our community. I didn't make any of this happen. But I have hope for what is to come. 
So while all this is going on in like a, a work world, right, we open our door to this little girl. And she was much smaller than she is now. She was six. And when she was placed with us, we were initially told, hey, it doesn't look like reunification is, is gonna happen between her and her biological mom. And we said, okay, like, we're open-handed in this, man. She can come stay with us, and if she goes home to be with mom, praise God, and if she stays with us, praise God, right? And so things didn't look like they were going in a good direction for her to go back with her mom, and then her mom started doing really well. Like, praise God for that. So they bumped up visits, and like reunification actually became a conversation of like, there's a chance, like there's a possibility. And then we got a phone call that her mom had relapsed. And slowly, there were steps taken backwards to where reunification was no longer on the table. And this summer, both her biological parents lost their legal rights to their kid. And so this little girl has been in our home and we've kind of been on this roller coaster, right? This foster care journey where things look one way and then they change and then they look another way and then they change. And when the termination took place, Taylor and I said, yeah, we're willing to adopt her. And we started walking through that process. Now on Friday, I got an email from the school of woodworking. I got a school from Mark Adams School of Woodworking letting me know that I was handpicked to be an intern there next year for two weeks. That means I get to work alongside some of the best craftspeople of modern time, and it is paid for. I did not make that happen. And 15 minutes later, I got an email from our attorney saying that our request to adopt was denied. Now, it was over paperwork. Something wasn't filled out right. But this has been the last two years of my life. Ups and downs, disappointment, excitement. Every time that I go to Mark Adams, I experience God's goodness at a woodworking school, and I'm aware that sounds kind of goofy. But I see the way that God provides for me every time that I go there. And so learning about the internship is awesome and then getting that email was a punch to the gut. But a couple days before that email came in, I was tucking that little girl into bed and I sat on the bottom bunk next to her and I put my hand out and she put her hand in mine and we were getting ready to pray and she looked at me and she said, Craig, what's your favorite thing on earth? I said, it's Taylor. And she said, mine's Jesus. And I was so incredibly proud and bitter that I just got punked by an eight-year-old. I'm like, the pastor over here is getting gooey for his wife and this kid's like, I know what's up. But I'm grateful for that moment before I got that news on Friday because I have done what I'm supposed to do. If for some reason, adoption is not in the cards, if it does not play out the way that we hope, I have pointed her to Jesus along the way. Amen. 
Church, when you find yourself in a season of hardship, whether you're in it now, you've been in it, or it's coming for you, there is hope in what is to come. The last two years to me have been evidence of God's goodness, even while I've sat like a moron in the desert and said, he's not gonna deliver. It's gonna make a good book someday. You know, several months ago, I stumbled onto some quotes by a missionary uh, wife named Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband is pretty well known for uh, being a martyr for the faith. But man, she's got some, some bombs. And so I was reading through some of these quotes, and honestly, they've been water in the desert for me. She said, he makes us wait. He keeps us on purpose in the dark. He makes us walk when we wanna run, sit still when we wanna walk, for he has things to do in our souls that we are not interested in. Owie. God will see to it that we are in circumstances best designed by his sovereign love to give us the opportunity to bear fruit for him. Endure hardship because there is hope in what is to come. Honestly, the last two years, they've been frustrating, they've been tiring, but they've grown an endurance in me that I could have never developed on my own. There's a fruit that has come from it but all through it, there's been a hope, thanks to Jesus. Back to verse five, sorry for the mini sermon. Back to the funeral sermon. (laughs) Back to verse five. Timothy, you are to exercise self-control in everything, endure hardship, and then he says, do the work of an evangelist. Evangel, right? The root of evangelist. It comes from the Greek euangelion, right? This is the gospel. Evangelist is one who proclaims the gospel. Be clear about who God is and the gospel. Be clear of who Jesus is and what he has done. Be clear of what you have in Christ. Last week, Pastor Brad was uh, looking at 2 Timothy chapter four. He was looking at uh, verses before what we have jumped into today. And Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying, man, be ready to preach at all times. There is no such thing as an off season. You are never on the bench. Be prepared all the time. Preach the good news. Do the work of an evangelist. And in Acts chapter 17, we see Paul actually living this out himself. He was in Athens, Greece. He was at a place called Mars Hill. And Paul is struck by the idolatry that he's seeing in this community, these people worshiping to this unknown God. And he's looking at what's going on. And he said, man, somebody needs to show up and actually start speaking some truth to these folks. And so he starts out with the religious types. And then he moves on to the people that are coming and going from the marketplace. And then he goes and he talks to uh, the intellectuals at the Areopagus. He's doing the work of an evangelist, and today, man, we need workers. We need workers to engage the religious types. We need workers to engage people in the streets. 
We need workers to engage the skeptics and the intellects. Today, there's a great need for folks to do the work of an evangelist. Paul then goes on to tell Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill it. This is the whole point. Fulfill your role. Keep going. Keep going. And so Paul is, is commanding Timothy, do these things. Now he swings to verse six, where he starts going on to a little self-reflection. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is close. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. You know, we read these verses and we're like, man, dude must have been a rock star. He fought the good fight, he finished the race, he kept the faith, I got out of bed today, right? We read this and we're like, man, he wrote a ton of the New Testament. Like, he planted churches that planted churches that planted churches that spread the gospel across the globe. No wonder, this dude is a rock star. Here's the reality. He was sitting in jail. He had no clue that his letters were going to go on to be in the Bible. He had no clue if churches were going to survive or not that he had gone and planted. It was illegal to be a Christian. Emperor Nero had literally burned down a ton of Rome, blamed it on Christians. There was a mass persecution. He was arrested, thrown in jail. A lot of his friends abandoned him and betrayed him. He's sitting in jail. Later in this book, he asked for Timothy to bring him a coat because he doesn't even have one. This dude is broke down, has nothing, and is still writing this about his life. Why? Because of the hope that comes in Jesus. He's like, I don't care what's happening to me. I'm about to beheaded. They are going to hack off my head because of my faith, and I have done well. I have finished the race. I have fought the faith, or I have fought the fight. I have kept the faith. For us, it's so easy to lose sight. We're like, dude, he was one of the 12 apostles. He's like, I'm on death row. This is how my life is going to end. Paul isn't writing these words because he's a big deal, but he's writing them with humility as somebody who loves Jesus. This phrase, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, this ties back to the old covenant, it ties back to the law. That all throughout the old covenant, when somebody would sin, they had to make a sacrifice to pay for it. That the system was put into place where when you sinned, blood had to be poured out to cover it. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, animals were killed and their hides were taken to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. From the get-go, sin has required blood. And so Paul is referring back to this system where there were burnt offerings and grain offerings and uh, there was uh, sin offerings and there were all these different offerings that people had to do. And a burnt offering involved the sacrifice of an animal. And so animals would be killed, their blood would be poured out. 
and they would literally be roasted until there was nothing left. The blood covered their sin and the destruction of that was the erasing of whatever their transgression was. It was through sacrifice that they tried to maintain right standing before God. And a part of the practice of burnt offerings was the practice of a drink offering. And so based on the kind of animal, there was a certain quantity of wine that was poured out on this roasting animal. And so if you killed a bull, you would pour out X amount of wine and it would hit the coals and it would steam up and it caused an aroma that was considered soothing to the Lord. Now Paul isn't saying here, my life is about to be sacrificed for the gospel. He's saying, "Uh uh-uh, Christ was sacrificed. I was merely a drink offering poured on the ultimate work that he did for you and for me. I'm not a big deal. I haven't done anything that's that great. Look at what Christ has done. That Christ was the sacrifice. The author of Hebrews writes about the sacrificial system and how it really had zero power. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses one to seven, it says, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshiper by the same sacrifices. They continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, Christ, he said, you did not desire sacrifice or offering, but you prepared a body for me. You didn't delight in burnt offerings or sin offerings. Then I said, see, as it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, God. I'm aware it's 17 degrees out today, but the sun is out. And when I looked down, there was a shady figure following me as I walked to my truck. That was my shadow. That shadow is not me. It's merely a representation of me. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. The whole sacrificial system, it didn't actually do anything. It was a shadow of what was to come, which is the sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of sin. You can't kill enough bulls or goats or cows or calves. Doesn't matter. That does not take away sin but the sacrifice of Christ once and for all took away sin. The behavior of sacrifice was merely the shadow of Jesus on the cross for us. Verse seven, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all of those who loved his appearing. Now, this is the funeral verses, right? This is what I'm talking about. These are some pretty popular verses and it's incredibly easy to believe that Paul just mustered up enough strength to do this on his own, right? That he's gotta be some kind of spiritual superhero. That somehow we must be super Christians to gain the crown. Hear me on this. 
We can't finish the race, we can't keep the course, we can't keep the faith, we can't accomplish this except that Jesus did it for us. There is nothing that you or I can do in life or in death to create right standing before God. That's what righteousness is. It is the rightness before God. That only comes through Jesus, through the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. Paul didn't earn righteousness. It was given to him. And he writes this in Romans 3, 22 to 24. He says, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm gonna repeat that. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 9. He shares it again there. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. Right? Paul did not earn righteousness. He was given righteousness. You can't earn righteousness, but you can be given righteousness. Why? Because Jesus earned it for us. And one day... Jesus will give each of us that believe in him the ultimate and permanent state of righteousness. That is a hope that we have in what is to come. Theologian Gordon Fee, he says, one receives the crown of righteousness because one has already received the righteousness of Christ. Now, when my wife and I got married 13 and a half years ago, uh, we got married the day after I graduated from college because I'm really bad at time management. And we got married in northern, well, central Wisconsin. And at our wedding, we did the whole walk down the aisle, right? We exchanged vows. We sang some songs. We exchanged rings. We kissed. We walked down an aisle, right? We got married. And a part of that ceremony was Taylor putting a ring on my finger and me putting a ring on my wife's finger, Now we wear rings to signify that we're married, but wearing rings doesn't make you married. Because if that was the case, I would have stopped being married 12 years ago when my ring fell off and is at the bottom of Sawyer Lake in northern Wisconsin. And as a side note, tungsten is not magnetic, so don't drag the lake with magnets for hours trying to find it. Rings are a symbol of what already is. This crown that Paul is talking about. He's saying, I'm getting this crown, why? Because it's been reserved for me. By who? By Jesus. I'm not gonna get a crown for anything that I've done. I'm gonna get a crown that's been reserved for me because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And what makes this crown so special, right? There is a crown of righteousness. It's not a crown of love, why? Because you and I are capable of creating love. We are, that's something that God graciously gave us. We get to experience love, we can love. It's something that you and I can do. Why isn't it called a crown of glory? Because later today, men in spandex with helmets on are gonna prance around with their crown of glory on after catching a sports ball for some points, right? 
We are capable of creating glory. It's whatever you put weight into. The reason that the crown of righteousness is so important is because righteousness is the only thing that you and I cannot do for ourselves. We can't. You and I cannot make ourselves right before God. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus can. It is through Christ who came and died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, that when we put our faith in him, when we acknowledge that we have died with him, that we have been buried with him, and that we have risen with him, that when God looks at us, he does not see us as broken and sinful, but as perfect through Jesus Christ. You cannot pray enough, give enough, serve enough, love enough to earn right standing before God. But you can put your faith in Jesus and receive it for free. Here's the deal. For those of us that are in Christ, we're gonna receive a crown of righteousness. And it's not by anything that we've done, but it's because of what Jesus has done for us. You know, Paul isn't capping this letter with impending doom, not expressing sadness that his time has come. Paul isn't fearful of what is coming. Paul is saying, man, my hope is not that I've done enough. My hope is not that I've been good enough. My hope is not that I've loved enough. My hope is not that I've had enough faith. My hope is in Jesus, and that is what makes me good enough. And you can put so much pressure on yourself to perform. And Paul is sitting in a jail cell, finding satisfaction in who he is in Christ. Paul is gonna receive the crown of righteousness that he didn't earn, that he didn't deserve because of what Jesus has done for him. Church, you need to hear this. In Jesus, you are okay. In Jesus, you are okay. You ready to go home and take a nap? I am. It's not about what you do. Yes, we are called to live a certain way, but that's not to earn anything. It's because it's a better way to live. You are okay in Jesus. You're okay in Jesus. You're okay in Jesus. In the early 2000s, a new genre of TV, how do you like that left turn? A new genre of TV really took off. It was this genre called reality TV. Super trashy, oh yeah, right? And it really, really took off with shows like Survivor. But in 2001, this new show started where 11 teams of two people would get together and they would do these challenges all across the globe. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The Amazing Race. Now, I am not one for these shows, but my wife likes these shows, and this week we've watched a lot of this show. I think they're on season like 4,000, right? Because there's more than one a year. I, I've had to watch more than one a year. But this week as I've sat and I've watched DVR'd episodes of The Amazing Race, 
I can't help but think, man, the amazing race is the Christian life. And I, this is so corny. Like, I feel bad even saying this to you, but it's true. In this life, you will face roadblocks. You will face detours. You will be U-turned. In this life, you will face challenges that test your skills, your knowledge, your strategy, how you work with other people. There will be uh, challenges that test your navigational skills and if you can drive a stick. There will be challenges that make you face your fears. There will be challenges that call you to do nothing. There will be teams that are willing to work with you and teams that don't want to work with you. You will get tired. You will get bumps and you will get bruises. You will get let down. You will fail at challenges only to be saved by grace you didn't deserve so you can continue on to the next leg. You will experience immense joy and deep satisfaction and everybody's race ends at a different time. Paul's call to Timothy is Paul's call to us. Stay sober-minded. Endure suffering and hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. There's much to do. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Why? Because you're okay in Jesus. Let's pray. Man, Father, we thank you that you are our hope in life and in death. That it's Jesus, that you've provided a way. Thank you that he is our faithful savior. That he set us free. That you watch over us now in our struggles and in our sin and that you don't lord those things over us but that you see perfection in your son. Would you help our hearts to believe that? Would you help us to know that we're okay in Jesus? Today would we find rest, not in our circumstances, not in our work, not in anything that we do, but in you. That today, this week, this holiday season, this coming year, that in everything we would look at it through the filter of we are okay in Jesus and that we would find freedom in that. Father, may we be a church that knows that we can't earn righteousness. May we be a church that is grateful for the gift of righteousness and may we be a church that shares that gift with others. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Man, it has been a privilege to be with you this morning. Have a good week. I'll see you next week.